Please take your Bibles with me this evening and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be preaching the second half of this two-part sermon in 1 Corinthians 10.15 through 11.1. We preached the first half of this message the last time we were together. And as we did so, uh, we made it through verse 23. And as we spoke on these verses, 15 through 23, uh, Paul began by saying, I speak, as, I speak as to wise men. So he says, you understand, you understand biblical things, so judge what I'm saying. And then he used several examples to speak of testimony. He talked about the Lord's Supper. He said the cup of blessing, the bread which we break and which we eat. Is this not communion of the blood of Christ? Are we not identifying with Christ by the things that we're doing physically? And then he talked about Israel. And he said, behold Israel in the flesh. They sacrifice on the altar and when they sacrifice on the altar, they are doing something physical that is identifying themselves with the altar and with national Israel. So they have physical actions and their physical actions are identifying themselves with something spiritual. And as Paul continued, he said, well, what he does not want in verse 20 is for them to be associated with devils, for them to be associated with demons. And he said, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils at the same time. You can't eat at the, cup of the, uh, at the table of the Lord and at the table of devils at the same time. And so as he was using these analogies and these examples, what he was attempting to do was to describe that, yes, even though we have freedom in Christ, uh, in his example, to eat meat, yet at the same time, we need to be thinking about the possibility and the times in which we need to limit our liberties for the sake of testimony. Personal testimony, the testimony of the, of the Word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, the testimony of the Gospel. And recall last time uh, we were together in, in chapter 10 verses 1 through 14, he gave the example of the consequences of Israel and how they, having been puffed up and working against God, uh, saw great consequences. And Paul was warning that this could happen to you in the church as well. And then we finished with verse 23. All things are indeed lawful for me, he said, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. And we had seen those verses before, and this was the second time Paul has said almost these exact same words, encapsulating the idea that even though something is lawful in Christ, that doesn't mean you should Always do it. And this evening we're going to add some practicality to the principles and the concepts that we learned in part one. As we learned about these aspects of our liberties that form our public identity, just as in the Lord's Supper we have a public identity that informs our spiritual identity. And just as Israel, through the altar, had a public identity that informed their spiritual identity, so too those things in our lives in which we partake identify us either with the God of heaven or with, as Paul said in verse 20, devils. And then finally, in that message, we learned exactly how much God wants us to identify with Him. How jealous He is over us. That's verse 22. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? In this second part, Paul is going to give us direct commands concerning our earthly responsibilities as God's children. 
A message to those of us who have believed on Jesus Christ to be saved. If our priority is not with our liberties, but rather how we can best serve and identify with Jesus Christ through our liberties, then Paul's commands in these next several verses will serve to be our practical guide to the mindset that we must have in order that these expectations can be carried out in our lives. And so, Paul first emphasizes that your mindset should center upon the needs of others and not your own needs. The first point I give here, and the application points will kind of flow into the sermon or through the sermon, is that it's not about, or excuse me, it it is about your brother, it's not about yourself. It's about your brother, it's about others. Not even just your brothers in Christ. That the way you live your life needs to be about others, not about yourself. And let's look in verse 24 as we pick up the second half of this message. Paul says, Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. The command to seek another, the command that it's not about you, is so strong, you notice Paul didn't just say, seek your brother or seek another above yourself. He said much more definitively, seek another, not yourself. There's a big difference. We humans have a tendency to think in comparisons and to think in degrees. As unbelievers, perhaps you thought that one day your good works would outweigh your bad works. So when you thought about the things which you perceived as good and thought about the things which you perceived as bad, you felt as if you were okay as long as the former appeared to be greater than the latter. As long as your good appeared to be better than your bad or greater than your bad. Now, of course, you always those perceptions were on a sliding scale, right? Your good was always a little bit better than it actually was. And your bad was always a little bit not as bad as it actually was. And so you graded yourself on a curve. And so you'd say, well, this wasn't exactly a good thing, but it's better than what he did. So it's, it's probably an okay thing. I'm, I'm probably still a good person, even though that thing might be considered bad by some people. I think I'm okay there. And then you do something really bad and you'd say, well, yeah, that may have been bad, but not really I'm not a murderer or anything, so um, I think it's not that. I'm probably doing okay still. It's just, it's just a little bit. And those now who perhaps you thought that way one time, now that you understand the gospel by the grace of God, you realize that that's not actually how it works, is it? God does not operate on a sliding scale of perceived morality. In fact, Isaiah 64 tells us that we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Everything that we do in the unbelieving state, whether we think it's good or not, is not labeled as good in the eyes of God. Not one action on our part outside of Christ has any ability whatsoever to please a holy God. Now, as those who are under grace, we further understand that following salvation... The only reason anything we do pleases God is because it's done by faith. And therefore, it is done through the only one who ever has and the only one who ever will please God. And that's Jesus Christ the righteous. 
But even though we as believers have realized that we cannot save ourselves, well, that tendency to operate on a sliding scale of morality can still creep back into our lives, can't it? We feel like we're doing okay for God as long as our good deeds outweigh our selfish deeds. As long as we spend a certain amount of time every day focused on God things, then we feel okay or we feel that we can justify the time spent on selfish things. As long as I give my 10% of my money to God, I feel justified taking the 90% and using it selfishly. Well, the problem is, in the same way that this doesn't work for salvation, it absolutely does not work for Christian living. God does not want us to put our Christian life in a box, to compartmentalize our lives so that we give Him some, keep some for ourselves, and simply do our best to ensure that God's portion outweighs our portion. We know that that's not how it works. God wants all of you, every day. And so as we think about Paul's words in verse 24, it is not Paul saying, let no man seek himself more than another, but rather, what does it say? It says, let no man seek his own, but every man another, or as it says in the King James, another's wealth. And you do notice in this verse that wealth is in italics. We've talked about this many times before. What this means is that this word is not in the original Greek text and the translators have supplied the word for clarity. Now, in my opinion, the King James translators have done a magnificent job of supplying words that are are very um, proper within the context in order that we might clearly understand what the text is trying to say. And most often, more often than not, certainly more often than not, I find myself agreeing with them. This is one of those occasions where that word wealth might actually be just a little bit too narrow. And perhaps we should broad our thinking on that idea as we think about the term wealth. Uh, We would not simply say that we're seeking another man's monetary wealth. And, And if we broaden our idea of wealth, it could certainly have the idea of physical wealth, spiritual wealth, emotional wealth, well-being. And I think that that would be a better word or, or a better idea as we think of this word wealth to really put in the word well-being there or to think of it as letting us pursue or seek another man's best interests or well-being. So it's about another. It's about others. It's not about yourself. And notice what verse 25 says. Paul says, Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat, asking no question for conscience' sake. So Paul begins to give a hypothetical here. He says, in a circumstance where you're going to buy meat at a butcher, at a shambles, he says, you can content yourself to eat it without asking questions about its source. The meat may have been offered to idols. It may not have been offered to idols. And the fact of the matter is, it really doesn't matter. So you don't need to worry about it. And why is it that it doesn't matter? Look at verse 26. Paul says, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The reason why it doesn't actually matter whether the meat that's being sold at the butcher was offered to idols or not is because everything's of God. Now, we've talked about this several times in our First Corinthians series. Paul uh, said as he spoke of meat offered to idols several chapters earlier, he says, We know that an idol is nothing. 
An idol is nothing but stone. An idol is nothing but wood. An idol is nothing but a perception. There are no other gods but God. So it's not as if you're actually, you know that there's no God but God. And so you're not actually sacrificing or doing something special in reverence to a God because there are no gods but God. And so the fact that they would sacrifice that meat to idols, spiritually speaking, has no effect on you. It doesn't. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There's no such thing as other gods. They're nothing. It's all gods. We know it's all gods. And we should not feel intimidated by sinful men's attempts to corrupt things that are perfectly acceptable. Of course, we're not talking about sinful things here. You don't go and do something sinful and say, well, I can do something sinful because God is God and it's all gods. And so even the sinful things are are of God because that's not true. The sinful things are of the curse. But meat is not of the curse. Meat is of God. And so if meat is of God, then it's fine. And if somebody offers this meat up to a false idol before they give it to you, it didn't change the composition of the meat. It didn't change anything about the meat. It's not going to get into your body and, and have a spiritual effect on you. So it doesn't matter. So you go to the butcher and that steak looks good and delicious and just buy the steak. Don't even ask. Don't even worry about it. It's delicious. However, in verse 27, Paul gives an entirely different twist. And this is where things get interesting. This is going to be a real world situation. And it's a real world situation where the situation is almost identical, but in one scenario... Eating the meat is just fine. And in another scenario, eating the same meat would be sinful. Interesting. Let's talk about it together. How would this scenario play out in a first century city city such as Corinth? Let's read Corinth. Let's read verses 27 and 28. Paul says, If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. So we see this same concept that we saw in verse 26, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And let's talk about this scenario. Paul says, Imagine this. A unbeliever invites you to a feast. You go to that feast and there's some good food at that feast. And you're seeing that delicious steak. And it's cooked to perfection. And you look at that steak and the unbeliever sits down and you sit down and this steak is put before you. Paul says, just like if you were buying in the shambles, don't worry about whether it was offered to idols or not. Seasoned. Blackened a little bit. Smells great. Eat the delicious steak. Enjoy it. Don't ask. Just enjoy it. It doesn't matter, spiritually speaking, to you whether it's offered to idols or not. It doesn't change the composition of the meat. So eat the meat. Because it's all the Lord's anyway. And meat does not have intrinsic moral value. Again, I qualify. Paul is not saying if something sinful is offered to you that don't ask and just eat it. That's not what we're saying here. Or don't ask, just drink it. Or don't ask, just do it. We're saying if it's an intrinsically acceptable thing, 
where the only value given to it would be a false moral standard set up by the world, then don't worry about it in your own conscience. However, when would this scenario change? When would you sitting down with the unbeliever at this feast, meat being set before you, when could that exact same situation cause a problem, be sinful to the extent where you should not eat of that meat? That's verse 28. This is where a very small change actually makes a very dramatic difference. So you sit down at this same feast. The unbeliever sits next to you. Meat is set in front of you. And that unbeliever looks at you out of the corner of his eye and he says, oh, by the way, this meat was offered to idols. By the way, this meat was offered to idols. Now everything changes. And it doesn't change because you now have a problem with it personally in your spirit. Nothing changed in reality. The meat didn't change. The fact that you know you can eat that meat didn't change. What changed, however, is the conscience of the person that told you that the meat was offered to idols. What changed is that now you know that the person sitting next to you is wondering whether or not you, a person who claims to serve the living God and only the living God, are going to be willing to eat something that was offered to idols. And that changes everything. He knows you're a Christian and he wants to see what you're going to do. Paul says, for the sake of testimony, for the sake of conscience, not for your conscience, we'll see, but for another man's, do not eat of the meat. Paul reiterates in verse 28 that you do not abstain because of your spirit, because of your conscience. You abstain because of the other people's conscience. See, our liberty in Christ has nothing to do with us pushing the envelope of what we're allowed to do as a Christian. It has nothing to do with us getting as close to the edge of sin as we can and peeking over and grabbing a tree and leaning farther and farther and farther until we can see as far over the edge as possible without falling over the edge into sin. That's not what the Christian life is intended to be. The Christian life is intended to be a place where you are sometimes getting near that edge in a manner of speaking, sometimes being far away from that edge, and it is a ebb and a flow in your Christian liberty that hinges upon your conscience, and then where, where your conscience meets the conscience of a fellow believer, you need to defer to the conscience of a fellow believer, and where your conscience hits the conscience of an unbeliever, you need to defer to the conscience of an unbeliever, also that the testimony of Jesus Christ is uniquely magnified. The best way you can magnify Jesus Christ is what you should do in any situation. So you're by yourself. You know that there's nothing wrong with that piece of meat. It's not going to lessen the testimony of Jesus Christ for you to eat that piece of meat because you know that God is God. Then eat it. So you're with that fellow believer and that fellow believer knows just as much as you do 
about the gospel of Jesus Christ and about his liberty in Christ. He knows it's okay to eat that meat. So you too know it's been offered to idols, but you too can eat that meat and still glorify God to the maximum. Then you get around an unbeliever and he doesn't know. Well, now you should not eat that meat because magnifying the testimony of Jesus Christ and the glory of Jesus Christ is what you're about, not doing whatever you want or doing what's best for you or doing what you think you ought to be able to do. So Paul says in verse 29, Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. This is the overriding principle. The principle is that of conscience. Not just your conscience, but the conscience of the other. The conscience of the brother. The conscience of the server. The conscience of the unbeliever. Paul is exhorting you to maintain a divine concern for their conscience above your own and maintain the testimony of the Gospel above any other priority. And perhaps this concept rubs you the wrong way a little bit, does it? It sure did for me for several years. I had a real problem for several years, particularly in my high school years, because I went to churches where movie theaters were foreboding. And these churches kind of were, were, were big on the no movie theater thing. And, of course, the, one of the big proof texts for that was no appearance of evil. And so if you're going into a movie theater, your brother doesn't know what movie you're going into and so you should stay out of the theater because they may think you're going to that rated R movie when really you're going to that rated G movie and so there's an appearance of evil. And I had a really hard time with that just from a standpoint of, well, why aren't they assuming I'm going to the rated G movie even if I am going to the rated R movie? Why aren't they assuming the best of me instead of assuming the worst of me? Why do I have to play down to their false assumptions of me. And it was very frustrating and these sorts of things. There are other concepts like that. And so I've thought before, why should I be forced to live in light of another man's conscience? Why should I be forced to live in light of other people's understanding? In the verse and a half here, in verse 29 and 30, present this exact thought. Let's look at it together. Second half of 29 and 30. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? If I'm doing something that is squarely within my Christian liberty, well then why should I have to not do it because somebody else has a problem with it? I know that it doesn't displease God, so what's the problem here? And these are some some thoughts that have run through my mind in the past and this list was very easy for me to populate because these things are... On my mind, I just, I mean, when I was typing this sermon, these things just came right up. Why should my conscience be held captive to the excessive and perhaps unreasonable conscience of another? Why is my liberty being judged by the standard of another man's conscience? Why should I have to limit myself simply because that person doesn't have a good grasp of the freedoms that they have in Christ? Why should I be obligated to change what I can do simply to influence a world that can't even understand the spiritual implications of my actions? If I'm living squarely within the bounds of the grace of God, why should another believer speak against my actions as if I'm doing something wrong? If people want to judge me, that's their problem. 
I answer to God, not to others. And while all of these thoughts really do have an element of truth, don't they? I mean, honestly, if I am doing something that is squarely within the bounds of my religious liberty in Christ, some of those things do have an element of truth to them. But you know what? They all miss the point. Every single one of those questions, one of those, all of those questions which flowed so easily off of the top of your pastor's ha- mind because they're there in his head, all reveal something. And that something they reveal is selfishness. The something they reveal is selfishness. What these thoughts and questions reveal is that we have allowed our own ideas and concepts to override our love for the brethren, and our care for their conscience. And 1 John 2 teaches us that when we find ourselves exalting our own selves above our love for God and our love for the brethren, we likewise find ourselves out of fellowship with Him. So let me go back to that scenario that I found uh, in my high school years. This movie theater scenario. Was it sinful for me to go to a movie theater and watch a movie that I knew had nothing um, problematic with it. Well, some people would say yes. Some people would say no. Some people would say it's derivative of Hollywood, therefore it's inherently sinful. All of those things. I, I understand those arguments. I'm not getting into that tonight. But a movie that is, is not offensive to any biblical ideal, um, any biblical command. It's not going to offend the eyes. It's not going to offend the ears. It's not going to offend the heart. And while it might be okay for me on my own time to go and see that movie in a situation where I was with somebody who didn't understand their liberty in Christ, in a situation where I was with somebody from the church that did believe it was a problem, it would be a problem for me to go. In a situation uh, such as that, it might even be a problem for me to tell others in the church that I go to movies if it would offend their conscience. Because really, if I can magnify the Lord and not have any problem by doing that, if it's a liberty I have in Christ, then that is fine. But when I flaunt my liberty in Christ at the expense of a brother's conscience or at the expense of an unbeliever's conscience so that the testimony of Jesus Christ is in any way negated or lessened through my actions or through my words, then I have just gone to a place that Paul says, really, you ought not go. So, number one, we've seen it's about others, not about yourself. The second point I'd like us to see as we continue in verses 31 and following is that it's about God's glory, never about yourself. We've said this, but let's just put some teeth to this idea. Look at verse 31. Paul says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to Jews nor to Gentiles nor to the church of God. God. Why is it that God is asking me to judge my own actions on the basis of another man's conscience? Why is it that I must limit myself in my grace and in the understanding I have of the Word of God 
because of the believers and unbelievers who might not understand what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Well, the reason is because at the end of the day, what matters is not me. What matters is God. And therefore, what ought to matter to you is not your liberty to do certain things or not to do certain things. What should matter to you at the end of the day is that whatever you are doing and whatever you're not doing and whatever you're allowing yourself to do and whatever ways you're restraining yourself, whatever ways you're living in your liberties, whatever ways you are restraining your liberties, whether you do it, whether you don't, it should all be about glorifying God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ in the eyes of others. Have you ever heard 1 Corinthians 10.31 preached in that context before? I haven't. I've always heard this verse taught as, okay, well, if I'm going to clean the toilet, I'm going to put a smile on my face because whether I'm eating or drinking or whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it to the glory of God. Okay, so I have to um, go empty the trash for mom again and I need to do it to the glory of God, which means I need to do it when I'm told, uh, what I'm told, when I'm told to do it with the right heart attitude because that's obedience. Therefore, I'm glorifying God through my actions. And that's all true. But, that's not really what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here is what I'm deciding to eat or not to eat or what I'm deciding to do or not to do, what I'm deciding to watch on TV or not watch on TV, must be decided or must uh, face the conditions not just of my own understanding of what is right and wrong, but also the context in which I do. It's not just about what I do. It's about when I do it and who's around when I do it. In other words, you might be able to watch a television show on TV and know that that show has nothing in it that would offend your conscience, that would offend your walk with the Lord, that would cause you to fall out of fellowship with the Lord and you can watch it. But it might be wrong for you to watch that same television show if you had certain people over to your house. You might be able to watch that television show, but then you have your unbelieving relatives come to your house and you know that if you watch that television show with them around, they might get the wrong idea. The testimony of Jesus Christ through you might be lessened. So you actually would be in the wrong to watch that TV show when they are around because it might hurt the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you might be okay to watch the exact same television show if they were to leave. Because the testimony of Jesus Christ and the glory of God is more important than you. See, you can't just sit an unbeliever down and say, well, let me tell you why I'm going to do what I'm going to do. See, I have liberty in Christ and and this does not offend the gospel of Jesus Christ in this way and this way and this way. And I need you to understand that even though when I do this, it might look bad to you or it might seem to compromise my Christian testimony to you. In fact, it's perfectly within the liberties of Christ. So, so don't, don't think I'm doing anything wrong here because I'm not. Well, that's not going to fly with unbelievers because... They can't understand anything that's spiritually concerned. They can't understand Christian liberty. All they know is that you're doing something that they don't think a Christian ought to be doing and they're wondering why and they're wondering if this Christian thing is really just a bunch of malarkey. 
And so if you can restrain your liberties in order to show that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a bunch of malarkey, you're doing much better for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about you. It's never been about you. Never will be about you. If God and His Word are brought to maximum glory by our personal abstinence from something, then why are we intent on doing it? Is this not merely selfishness seeking to assert its own right over God's glory? Is this not simply the same manifestation of selfishness that sent Jesus Christ to the cross to begin with? Isn't such attitude the very thing that drove our Savior to the cross? And so the key, according to verse 32, is that we give no offense. Whether we're around an unbelieving Jew who can't yet understand the Gospel and we need to act in such a way so as to not cause them greater offense against Messiah, or whether we're in the presence of an unbelieving Gentile and we need to act in such a way so as not to cause offense among an unbelieving Gentile, Gentile, or whether we're among the brethren. And there's a weaker brethren situation. We talked about that several weeks ago in 1 Corinthians. A weaker brethren situation where their conscience is weak in Christ. They do believe there certain things that we know to be liberties are wrong. Well, why, why go through the process of offending them? Why go through the process of putting a stumbling block in front of them? We do our best to carefully and lovingly guide the consciences of others into a right standing with Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we lead our own conscience into a correct standing as well. So we should give no offense to the Jew, to the Gentile, nor to the Church of God. It has troubled me in the past as I've read Missionary Bergman's letters. He's the missionary to the Jewish um, people in Cleveland. How one of the largest parts of his ministry as a missionary to the Jews in Cleveland is trying to overcome the negative stigma of Christians in the eyes of the Jewish community. Because Christians have acted in such an offensive manner to the Jews. They have been so overt in being offensive to the Jews that the Jews literally despise Christians. And it's not necessarily because of the gospel we preach, but because of our blatant disregard for them and what they believe. Missionary Bergman says he comes up against that all the time. That is indicative of a Christian culture that has not learned the lesson of 1 Corinthians 10. That's indicative of a Christian culture that has willingly offended the unbeliever in order to assert their liberties in Christ. And God says, it's wrong. So it's not about you. It's about God and His glory. So we please others above ourselves. We serve others above ourselves. And in all things, we glorify God foremost. We don't seek our own profit. We seek the profit of others. And here, notice... Paul is again holding himself up as an example. Look at verse 33. He says, Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. See, Paul did this. 
And Paul has set himself, in 1 Corinthians 9, the entire chapter was about Paul setting himself up as an example, wasn't it? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 that he has withheld his own liberties in Christ for the sake of the gospel. He had the liberty to get married and he hasn't done it for the sake of the gospel. He had the liberty to ask the churches that he ministered to for money and he did not do it for the sake of the gospel. He withheld from himself the liberties of a minister, the liberties of a man, the liberties of a Christian, all so that the gospel might be perpetuated. Paul said, and you should do this. If I do it, then you can do it too. Look to me for an example. And he says the same thing here. He says, this is what I do. I please all men in all things. I don't seek my own profit. I seek the profit of others for a purpose. And what is that purpose in verse 33? That they may be saved. Well, you say, well, what, is, what does this mean? Um, Paul sought the profit of of, of others, including believers. Well, believers are already saved. So if they're a believer, then why do we need to seek their profit? They're already saved. Well, the concept of salvation in the Bible goes well beyond just being born again. Perhaps you recall the story of the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer was told when Paul and Silas were singing in Philippi in the jail and there was an earthquake and, and all the, the chains were loosed and the Philippian jailer was ready to kill himself because he knew that the chains had been loosed. Paul and Silas told him, stop, don't do that, we are all accounted for. And the Philippian jailer, what did he say? He fell down and he said, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, if that, that he told him that if he would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all his heart, he will be saved. But then what did he say? He said, if thou believe with all thine heart, thou shalt be saved and thy whole house. Well, we know that his whole house would not be born again simply because the Philippian jailer believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it mean there that his whole house would be saved? Well, there's some debate. But this is one of several examples where we see salvation spoken of not in the sense of being born again, but in the sense of simply being saved from the consequences of physical sin. So certainly the Philippian jailer, as he was born again, would be saved from eternal judgment. Perhaps his family would be saved from eternal judgment if they believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. But it's also true that the father himself as being saved would save the family from a great deal of the lifestyle of sin simply by leading his family in a way of righteousness. And so we see the idea of salvation many times in Scripture being spoken of not as being saved from the punishment of sin, but actually being saved from sins. Being saved from getting into a sin. Saving our children by disciplining them. If you discipline your child, the Scriptures say they will be saved. Does that mean they will be born again? Absolutely not. What it does mean, though, is that they will be saved a great deal of trouble because they will learn what it is to be disciplined. We see several unbelievers. We see, you're all probably familiar with unbelievers that have learned how to live properly through discipline. And they have been saved a great deal of trouble in their lives through discipline. So in much the same way, our willingness to set aside our own liberties for the sake of others and the glory of God is a major means by which those with whom we interact will be drawn closer in their walk to the Lord. And as we reflect careful and deliberate Christian testimony, we preserve the conscience of the brethren. We are used by God as a source of conviction upon the consciences of the lost as well. 
And in doing so, God is glorified and men are saved. And what more could we ask for? What more could we ask for in our lives when you get to the end of a day? Perhaps you have a good day. Today was kind of a, a, a bittersweet day in our household. and I was trying to get some uh, work done and some of it got done, some of it didn't get done. That was fine. We'll pillow our heads tonight and we'll know that some good things happened and some good things didn't. You like to pillow your head at the end of the day and look back upon the day and say, you know what, it was a productive day. I got all the things done on my to-do list, a few things that weren't on my to-do list. The children were well behaved. Traffic was good on the way to work and back. It was a good day. Now imagine if at the end of every day you could put your head on your pillow and you say, today my Christian brothers were edified. The lost were brought to a better knowledge of God and the glory of God was magnified through me. That would be a pretty good day, wouldn't it? If you could pillow your head every day and say that, that would be a pretty good day. Well, that's what Paul is telling us to do. Live within our liberties and restraining our liberties in such a manner that believers are edified, unbelievers are convicted, and God is glorified. We finish tonight with chapter 11, verse 1, and then we'll apply briefly. Paul says this as we continue, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. This is one of those areas where perhaps the, the chapter break is in the wrong point. I believe this ties in with this context and not with uh, eleven two and following as closely. Paul limits his liberties. He places others above himself and magnifies God's glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ because of what Christ did. And now Paul calls upon all those who read his words to do the same, to limit their liberties, to place others above themselves, and to magnify God's glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice the Greek word there, mimetes, for be ye followers, mimetes of me, is literally the word Imitator. It's the word from which we get our English word, mimic. Paul literally says, mimic me as I mimic Christ. Mimic me as I mimic Christ. Let's apply this evening. We've already talked about these two points. Number one, it's about others. It's not about yourself. Number two, it's about God's glory. Never about yourself. We've seen those two points, but there's one more thing I want to mention before we're finished. For some of you, these two points look very familiar. If you've been with us on Tuesday evenings, we don't record Tuesday evenings, but if you've been with us on Tuesday evenings, as we've been walking through 1 John, we recall that there are two biblical means by which the Scriptures present we are able to maintain fellowship with God. Those two biblical means are number one, obeying His commandments, and number two, loving the brethren. And those are our two points this evening, isn't it? Our two points is that number one, you would love others, love your neighbor as yourself, love your brother above yourself, and number two, that you would seek God's glory above your own. That you would obey God's commandments and that you would, secondly, love your brother. 
And so we see a consistency in Scripture, something that, as we've presented in 1 John, goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments, that you love God and that you love your brother, goes into the Gospels. Jesus says the two great commandments are that you love God and love your brother. Here we see it in 1 Corinthians, that Paul says if you want to love God and love your brother, then you need to limit your liberties as such. And then we go all the way till near the end of the Bible in 1 John, and John is saying if you want to have fellowship with God and be right with Him, then you need to obey God and love your brother. It's all over Scripture. There is a vein of truth throughout Scripture that revolves around these two concepts. Obeying the commands of God and loving your brethren. And here we are in 1 Corinthians and now Paul says the exact same thing. That our responsibility as it pertains to how we live within our Christian liberty is summed up in the reality that our loyalty ought never be to ourselves but only to what is best for others and what is right before God. Do you see this? Do you see how the very same standard of selfless obedience overrides every aspect of our relationship with God? Whether it's when we consider our liberties, or whether it's when we consider our obedience, or whether it's when we consider how we have fellowship with God, which relates to how we have our prayers answered. It all comes back to these concepts of selflessness. Do you see how there's no room in the daily operation of Christianity for you to be concerned with what you want? Jesus Christ set the example. He came to, the, to earth in complete submission to the glory of God, in complete submission to the will of the Father, and His selfless purpose was to bear our sin on the tree, on the cross. And as we close today, may I encourage you to allow the testimony of the Word of God and the application of His Holy Spirit in your heart to impress upon you the areas of your life that are governed by your selfish desires as opposed to being properly governed by submission to the Word of God and by love for the brethren. In what areas are your liberties overriding the testimony of Jesus Christ among an unbeliever, among a fellow believer, In what areas are you causing damage to the gospel by asserting what you recognize to be even your liberty in Christ? Let's close in prayer.